Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 12, We're Leaving Manoa, Part 2, Victory. Welcome back, everyone. I hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, and I do apologize that it's been a little while since our uh, last episode. My wife and I are getting ready to move across the country in the next few days, so it certainly has been a little bit of a chaotic scene over here as uh, I try and get that taken care of and, of course, getting this podcast done. But The good news is in the next couple of weeks we will be done and I will be on a more consistent schedule with putting out episodes. My goal is one every seven days once we are settled. So with that said, again, I hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode on the first two Austrian attempts to relieve the fortress city of Manoa, both of which of course failed. But in a sense, we can consider the entire campaign on both sides a stalemate since Napoleon wasn't able to capture the city, and General Wermser did technically make it back to the city. Too long, didn't read. After two bloody campaigns across the Po Valley, we're back to square one. So, with being back at square one, it meant that the French had reinvested in besieging the city, while the Austrian contingent there was left with a battered army, dwindling supplies, and the need for another relief attempt to repel the French. Hopefully this time, it will go much better for them. Since we're listening to a podcast about Napoleon Bonaparte, I think we all know the answer to that question, don't we? Now, to this point, Napoleon's main objective of capturing Manoa had been unsuccessful. But his battle strategy in general utterly shocked his Austrian opponents. We mentioned the newly deployed formations of the Bataillon Carré system last week, and once the website is up and running, I'll have photos of this and every other formation Napoleon is to deploy in this and subsequent campaigns. But the motivation that Napoleon instilled in his men, remember, many of them waltzed into near-suicidal frontal assault charges even uphill last week, was something that the Austrians were just unable to match. We mentioned a few reasons why a couple episodes back. Poor leadership, older generals, outdated tactics, multilingual battalions, many of whom didn't speak German and needed to use French of all languages as a lingua franca, thus ensuring many orders were heard and intercepted by the French. And lastly, just overall poor campaign strategies. But even with this in consideration, Napoleon instilled an esprit de corps in his troops that few rivaled in this campaign, and fewer still would rival in subsequent ones. The Austrians were also now suffering from the consequences of the defeats. We mentioned at the end of last episode that the French forced Wemser back into Mantua itself, but with the city now blockaded and under near constant barrage, the Austrians were faced with the prospect of a humanitarian catastrophe. With 30,000 men holed up in Manoa, the Austrians would lose nearly 5,000 to disease and malnutrition over the next six weeks leading into November, and with only three months of food rations left, they were forced to forage the countryside for any kind of additional sustenance. This, of course, was extremely dangerous, as the French were patrolling the countryside, and they would pick off any Austrian they could find, including killing upwards of 1,000 men in a single sortie. In a word, the Austrian situation was untenable. 
But Napoleon, even with the massive advantage of having nearly 50,000 soldiers at his disposal and besieging Manoa on a daily basis, was not in the clear yet. In fact, there was even a chance that he was at a significant disadvantage in the war overall, as the Rhine campaign on the French-German border was turning into a disaster for France, with General Jean-Baptiste Jourdan beaten back across the Rhine River on the 21st of September. And now, with the clear initiative, the Austrians could prepare to relieve Manoa for a third time, helping to save tens of thousands of their own soldiers from near-certain starvation. With this in mind, Napoleon would once again write to the Directory and ask for additional reinforcements. Knowing that he would need to concentrate nearly his entire force on the upcoming Austrian relief effort, he wanted to, again, protect his southern flank. Napoleon knew that the French presence in the Papal States was growing to become increasingly unpopular, and he feared that rebellion would break out any time in Rome. He even attempted to extend an olive branch to the Austrian Emperor Francis by attempting to make peace in Italy, but his message went unanswered. Francis, who would soon become Napoleon's personal whipping boy, loathed the French Revolution perhaps more than anyone else in Europe, if for no other reason than the fact that it beheaded his aunt, Queen Marie Antoinette. Making peace with Napoleon was not something he planned to do. Well, at least not yet. But Napoleon was also facing his own humanitarian crisis. With the autumn came rain, cold, and mud. It was the perfect breeding ground for disease, which began to take a toll on his troops, and it made campaigning through the region difficult, as moving heavy artillery would be close to impossible with the soggy terrain. He wrote to the Directory that peace offerings in the surrounding regions were necessary for the survival of his army, and that the survival of his army would be necessary for the survival of the war effort overall. Principally, he wanted to sign a peace offering with the Piedmontese and Genoese, believing that doing so would help secure his western flank and also counterbalance the looming Austrian threat. Above all, though, Napoleon just wanted more men. He knew that they would obviously be needed to continue the campaign, yes, but with many of his current troops dropping like flies, replacements would be critical in winning the north. While he waited, though, he was set on shoring up the south and did a little rearranging of the Italian peninsula as well, because while his army was not in the best state physically, its imposing numbers were still enough to keep any ideas of Italian counterattack at bay. And so on October 10, 1796, Napoleon signed a comprehensive peace treaty with Naples, allowing the Bourbons there to keep their throne as long as they did not interfere with the French campaigns in the region. Knowing they had little chance of winning a protracted conflict with Napoleon's army, they agreed. And it also ensured that Napoleon would be able to keep open lines of communications and supplies running through Genoa, meaning that reinforcing his men in the north would be much smoother. He did this without consulting the Directory, still wary of his intentions in Italy, but knowing he could do so, as the Directory were desperate for any type of victory with their losses mounting in Germany. Six days later, Napoleon declared the formation of the Cispidane Republic, modern-day Bologna, Ferrara, Modena, and Reggio, and had it guarded by 3,000 men. Infused with revolutionary ideals, Napoleon was beginning to bring about a unity on the Italian peninsula, both politically and geographically. Napoleon would also move to counter the influence of the Catholic Church in Italy. Having defeated the papal forces earlier in the year, he made sure that Pope Pius VI knew who was really in charge of the papal states. He threatened destruction to the church should they rise up against him, something which enraged many Italians who still saw the church as an integral part of their lives. But Napoleon was undeterred. The church would fall in line or risk complete annihilation at the hands of his army. And with the directory refusing his request for additional troops, it would prove fortunate that the Pope heeded Napoleon's advice, because as November was fast approaching, so too was the Austrians' third relief attempt to retake Manoa. Now, to Napoleon's credit, he did try to make peace with Worms' forces early in October, 
seeing the humanitarian crisis that was quickly unfolding between both of the armies. Quote, the Braves should be facing danger, not the swamp plague, he wrote to Wormser. A valiant effort, but Wormser, unsurprisingly, turned it down. Perhaps it was his pride, or perhaps it was knowing the large contingent was on its way down to help him, but Wormser believed, even with the state of his army being the way that it was, Napoleon was in no position to dictate terms. His military genius on the previous attempts notwithstanding, he was just a 27-year-old soldier after all. The third relief attempt by the Austrians was, to the surprise of no one, devised not by field marshals or experienced soldiers, but by a committee. In this particular instance, the Aulic Council. You can probably already guess how this third relief attempt turned out, can't you? For starters, this quote-unquote committee decided to have about 20,000 extra soldiers use diversions throughout the Po Valley. An incredible display of ignorance given what had just transpired over the previous two relief attempts. Having been repelled twice already apparently wasn't enough to force change. So what's the definition of insanity again? The main plan consisted of 28,000 soldiers led by 61-year-old Hungarian General Joseph Albinci driving the French from their positions in Rivoli back to Manoa, while 9,000 men would be used as a diversion by marching from Brenta to Legnago, ostensibly to feign their larger troop movements. The final 10,000 men would be sent to Bassano to prevent Napoleon from concentrating his nearly 50,000 men in any single area. But for all intents and purposes, it too was just a distraction. Now, while Alvinci was also an older general, much like Wurmser, Napoleon would later write that he thought Alvinci was one of the more formidable generals he faced in battle. He wrote little about him at the time, which actually demonstrated the respect he had for him. Many of the other generals Napoleon faced in battle and defeated, such as Beaulieu and Wurmser, he wrote glowingly about in bulletins published throughout Italy and France, likely done as a way of mocking them in the face of their defeats and hoping to push for their firings. But unlike those generals, Alvinci would prove to be far more effective in battle. Now, while his name is seldom remembered today, and his name would likely be an extra credit question rather than a main one on the history exam, it would be he who would hand Napoleon Bonaparte his first defeat in battle. As October turned into November, Napoleon began to move his troops around the Po Valley to fortify his positions. He moved many of them as far back as was possible to ensure that he could gain a clear understanding of the troop movements from the Austrians, as well as to allow for proper defenses of his own positions. Alvinci crossed the Piave River in northern Italy on November 2nd with the intention of marching on Vicenza, situating between the Brenta River to the northeast and the Adige River to the southwest. Alvinci ordered Kazdanovich's men to approach via Bassano on the banks of the Brenta River and General Giovanni Provera to approach from the Venetian city of Treviso. The idea was to encircle the city and begin their advance on Mantua, which lay to the southwest. French General Massena's men were positioned outside of Vicenza, but Napoleon, much to Massena's disappointment, ordered his men to retreat as they were heavily outnumbered. He needed his army ready for the main battles which lay ahead. On November 5th, Napoleon's scouts spotted the Austrian vanguard crossing the Brenta River, and Napoleon ordered General Agarro up from the small commune of Montevello to assist in their assault. Napoleon then attacked the following day, while Massena's forces attacked General Provera's forces up north in Fonteneva. Now, they were able to halt the vanguard advance and did push them back to the Brenta, but not across it. This meant that the Austrians were still in position for a main assault and could still achieve a bridgehead if they wanted to. By the way, I don't think I've mentioned this, but for those of you who are not military historians or strategist buffs, the terms vanguard and rearguard have been used at length a few times here throughout the podcast, and you can bet they'll be used a bunch more in the future. So let's talk about them. 
in a nutshell, the vanguard of an army is essentially the attacking force of that army. It's the leading part of an advancing military force responsible for, among other things, seeking out the enemy and securing ground until reinforcements can arrive. The rear guard, as its name suggests, protects the rear of this military force, either during an attack or during a retreat. They're also responsible for keeping communication lines open between fronts, as well as ensuring a smooth, if not safe, plan of retreat should the need arise. Okay, I hope that helps, and now back to the story. Agaho then made his way to Bassano and met Kazdanovich's forces there on November 6th. With heavy fighting amongst the armies, both between them in Bassano and in Fontavia further south, the Austrians were able to halt the French assault. The villages changed hands several times on that day, but with heavy losses mounting and the French unable to push the Austrians back across the Brenta, Napoleon ordered a retreat from the city. While both sides lost close to 3,000 men in a single day, Napoleon couldn't afford to replace his soldiers. In ordering the retreat, Napoleon Bonaparte suffered his first ever defeat in the field, albeit a relatively small one in the grand scheme of the campaign. Still, he was defeated, and he needed to regroup. Put the Second Battle of Bassano in the L column for the first time in our podcast series. Meanwhile, Napoleon's loss at Bassano was not the only defeat the French would suffer at the start of the Third Relief Effort. Napoleon had ordered General Clovabois north to Trento with 10,500 men to help hold the city, as well as to repel the Austrian advance from the northwest. But our old friend, Austrian General Davidovich, met him with nearly 20,000 men from his Tyrol Corps. After a clash on November 2nd in Sembra led to the capture of Trento for the Austrians, Vibois was forced south to Galliano. On November 6th, Vibois was able to repulse Davidovich's forces who were besieging the French at Galliano. But that night, Vibois made the critical mistake of sending men around the city to deploy different positions, which ultimately weakened his main line. The Austrians again attacked in the morning with heavy fighting throughout the day, but after a final assault on the French rear line, panic set in and the French were forced to flee. Davidovich lost over 1,500 men in the fighting at Galliano alone, while Vibois lost nearly 4,500 between Sembra and Galliano. Now, while the defeat was brutal for the French, and I'll get into that in a minute, the victory was equally crippling for the Austrians generally, and Davidovich specifically, who had lost close to 4,000 men on this campaign alone. Their communication lines were badly damaged, and, well, they remained confused throughout the Po Valley. So, toss this one up as a Pyrrhic victory for old man Davidovich. But back to Vibois and his men. After learning of their defeat, Napoleon was furious and verbally harangued Vibois and his men for their failure and poor conduct. Stating, quote, Soldiers of the 39th and 85th Infantry, you are no longer fit to belong to the French army. You have shown neither discipline nor courage. You have allowed the enemy to dislodge you from a position where a handful of brave men could have stopped an army. The chief of staff will cause to be inscribed upon your flags. These men are no longer of the army of Italy. Now, one would now think that such a castigation would motivate troops to perform better. But Galliano and the Second Battle of Bassano would not be the last of the French defeats. Napoleon's men had regrouped by November 12th, spread across the Po Valley between Verona, Rivoli, and continuing the siege of Manoa. Massena and Agajo were able to flank the Austrians at Caldiero, a village 10 miles east of Verona, but with rain making the terrain and firing of weapons difficult, the Austrians once again repulsed the French advance. Napoleon 
would himself claim it as a victory, but with the French unable to advance further and a loss of nearly a thousand men, it was a pretty clear victory for the Austrians, who were now beginning to pick up some momentum in their relief campaign and believing that they could win. But once again, the Austrians were their own worst enemies. Despite now having a clear chance to cut off the French and chase them as they were retreating back from Verona, their generals were slow to pounce on these opportunities. Either one of Alvinci, Davidovich, or Wurms's armies could have inflicted enough damage to crush Napoleon's entire campaign, and he knew it. Napoleon had to employ an impressive juggling with his troops at containing Davidovich, besieging Manoa, and attacking Alvinci, that a defeat in either sector would be completely catastrophic. But, as I mentioned, the Austrians just could not smell blood in the water. Then Napoleon, now sensing that he had an opportunity to retake the initiative, devised a bold plan to get behind Alvinci's line at nearby Villanova and force him to fight for his line of retreat, essentially cutting off their ability to both advance or escape. He knew that their line of retreat was bogged down by wet rice fields, and even though they substantially outnumbered the French, this numerical advantage would count for little if they were impeded by soggy marshland. Napoleon also decided to cross the DJ River at Ronco rather than the closer and more passable Alvaredo because he thought it would be better to conceal their movements by not alerting the Austrian cavalry. A previously built pontoon bridge was safely stored away, and when Napoleon's men approached in stereotypical Napoleonic fashion, they built the bridge back up again, and by 7 a.m. on November 15th, the river was ready to be crossed. Because the terrain was so wet and muddy, it meant the troop movements were limited to small causeways or dikes on the banks of the Adige and a small tributary river that forked north, called the Alpone River. The Alpone, however, was narrow, only 20 yards or 18 meters wide, and 5 feet deep, or 1.5 meters, meaning that a smaller French contingent could cross it faster and more effectively than a larger Austrian army, which essentially would be bottlenecked. From Ronco, where the French intended to cross just northwest of the river's fork, a northbound road followed along a dike for about one and a half miles, or 2.4 kilometers, to a bridge leading to the east side of the river to a small village known as Arcole. It would be here that Napoleon would earn one of his greatest early military career victories and would prove decisive in repulsing the third and penultimate Austrian relief effort of Manoa. On the morning of November 15th, French troops crossed the pontoon bridge at Ronco first led by Agajo, who would head directly to Huarcorle, and then Messena, who would follow by covering the left flank along a causeway. Arcole was strongly held, and it was barricaded, and so any attempts to take the city would take considerable effort. Indeed, when Agajo reached the city, the Austrians repulsed the first and second attacks, which sent many French soldiers seeking shelter into the nearby causeway to avoid the blistering heat from the constant cannon fire. On the left flank, the Austrians attempted to seize the pontoon bridge, but were themselves repelled back by Massena's cavalry, ultimately ending in a stalemate as Massena was unable to pursue them any further. With the battle in a bloody slog well into the afternoon, Napoleon ordered two demi-brigades to cross the Adige below its confluence with the Alponi to try and assist in the attack from the right flank, and in a move trying to inspire his men and one that has since gone down in legend, Napoleon then grabbed a flag and stood 55 paces on top of the pontoon bridge from urging his men forward. He was nearly killed on numerous occasions and miraculously survived unharmed, but he did lose his aide de camp. And as wild as the images of Napoleon leading his men across a small pontoon bridge, flag in hand, it didn't work, 
understand, most historians agree that many of his soldiers refused to cross, afraid of their fate as many of the men around Napoleon began to drop like acorns. The French would pull most of their troops back from Marcole and regroup for two more days of fighting. Napoleon would order that campfires be kept lit throughout Arcole to trick the Austrians into thinking that they were still there. The following two days would continue to see back-and-forth skirmishes, but the French would ultimately win the battle on November 17th when Pesena and Agarro ambushed the Austrians on the western dike, sending them back towards Arcole. By 5 p.m., the French had fought their way into the city, taking it along with the bridge, which had been critical in resupplying the area. The French would suffer 3,500 casualties at Arcole, far more than the 2,200 suffered by the Austrians, but the Austrians had lost some 4,000 men and 11 guns to capture, numbers they just could not easily replace. While Alvinci was forced to withdraw from Arcole, Davidovich would still attack the previously harangued General Vaubois and Rivoli, routing him, but at this point, it was too little too late as now Napoleon was able to concentrate his forces on Davidovich and chase him back up the Adige Valley. Without any help from Davidovich or Wemser, Alvinci, while still able to attack Barona, was vulnerable, and he knew that he would not be able to attack again lest he withdraw. Despite some skirmishes over the following days, the Austrian Third Relief attempt of Manoa, while still more successful than the previous two, still ended in defeat. According to sources at the time, during the Battle of Arcole, people inside the city of Manoa could hear the cannon fire coming from across the valley, and it was a good indicator that many of the French camps around the city were open and vulnerable. But Wurmser, forever stuck in his conservatism, did nothing. When he would actually attempt an attack to break the French lines a few days later, he would lose over 800 men as there was no help left in the field from his general counterparts. His timing was poor, his strategy terrible, and his accountability non-existent. He would make his way back into the fortress, a loser for a third time in less than a year. The young general was schooling the old man, and there was still one more relief effort left to go. Now look, I don't want to make it seem that Wermser was this awful general. Indeed, he was one of the better ones throughout the Revolutionary Wars. But by the time Italy rolled around, he was just past his prime, much like a sports star in their twilight days. He was going up against an up-and-coming talent who had just had the determination that clearly passed Wurmser by. And it was for this reason that Napoleon had little respect for Wurms himself. But Napoleon had much respect for Alvinci, as we mentioned earlier. Indeed, had it not been for Alvinci, the Austrian losses would have been far greater and their damage to the French forces far heavier. Quote, It took good luck to defeat Alvinci, Napoleon would later admit. Dan, Napoleon himself was lucky he survived the third relief effort at all, given his near-suicidal charge across that pontoon bridge. But while the third time might not have been the charm, the Austrians were not done with their attempt to break the siege of Manoa, and as winter quickly approached, they began their plans for a fourth attempt at ending it. Even with their previous three tries failing, there was hope that this time the Austrians could finally break through. The previous attempt had proven that they could fight hand-in-hand with the French. Alvinci proved that he was a more capable commander than his predecessors at the very minimum, and the French forces were beginning to reel from the campaign being drawn out. While the Austrians had suffered over 18,000 casualties, the French suffered 19,000, had dwindling food supplies, fewer shoes, and the ever-important cash flow to pay the soldiers was also running low. 
Small mutinies even broke out among the French lines, leading to Napoleon ordering the ringleader shot for fear of a full-blown rebellion among the ranks. Napoleon would also fire Verbois and promote Barthélemy Catherine Joubert to general to command the troops at Rivoli. He spent the latter part of November writing back to the directory of the situation, fluctuating between supreme confidence and victory and requests for additional men and supplies, while also sending love letters to his wife, who was still in the throes of cuckolding him in Genoa. Arriving in Milan at the end of November to see her, he realized she was not there and disparaged her in his future letters, essentially resigned to his fate as nothing more than a placeholder husband while she gallivanted off with Hippolyte Charles. Now, while the lull in action allowed Napoleon some time to at least attempt at a balance of his personal life, he was also in a difficult position among the politicians in Italy. Reports of his soldiers raping Venetian women sent their neutral government into an understandable rage, and Napoleon had to reassure them that he would discipline any soldier caught acting out of the strict regulations implemented by his army. He would also oversee the French as they attempted to retake Corsica. The British, if you remember, had fled there after they were pushed out of Italy by Napoleon's troops once they invaded the Papal States. But now with France in full control of central Italy, having established the Cispidane Republic and taken Livorno on Tuscany's coast, they had a stray shot at the island. The Brits were able to stage a dramatic escape, however, with Paoli amongst those fleeing the island, thanks in no large part to one 38-year-old Commodore Horatio Nelson. Now, obviously, we'll have plenty of time to talk about Nelson over the next seven years, and certainly once we get to Trafalgar, but for now, he would see to it that the British in the Mediterranean would live to fight another day while the French began their retakeover of Corsica. Napoleon even made sure that his brother, Joseph, was there to help Salah City oversee the transition, and he was also there to make sure that their home was habitable again after it was ransacked by the Paolis following the Bonaparte's exile back in 1793. But back to Manoa. Between the end of the summer and the start of the winter in December of 1796, nearly 9,000 people died in the city due to either disease or starvation. While there were still some 20,000 soldiers inside of the city's walls at the start of December, less than half of them were fit for service. And while the Austrians had certainly seized some initiative in their previous relief attempt, their situation at present was approaching dire status. They had only enough rations to last until January 17, 1797. If they were to attack, they needed to do it immediately. And Napoleon was well aware of this. He sent more and more requests back to Paris asking for additional reinforcements. Quote, The Austrians are withdrawing their troops from the Rhine to send them down to Italy. Do the same. Help us. We are only asking for more men, he wrote to them. The Directory, though, wanting to keep their authority over him known, were slow to respond and sent no one. Napoleon then had to withstand the fourth relief effort with the men he had, but Napoleon would make sure that this relief effort would be the final relief effort. As the new year passed, and with weather conditions freezing, Napoleon received word that Alvinci was about to make another major assault. Moving south with 47,000 additional troops, Alvinci would repeat his move from the third relief attempt by splitting this main fighting force into two sending his main force of 28,000 men along the east side of Lake Garda, while General Provera's force of 15,000 marched across the plains from the east on their way to Verona. The rest of the men were posted to the west of Lake Garda to help scout as well as to ensure that any fleeing French would meet some resistance. Taking advantage of the winter fighting pause, Wurmser was able to break out of Manoa and headed southeast to join Alvinci's forces. 
Napoleon, upon hearing of their advance, left Milan and began to scout the area for any indications as to their next movements. Because the Directory would not send any additional reinforcements, Napoleon had to rearrange the troop placements he had throughout the northern and central Italy, knowing he would now need to take a gamble and open his southern flank to help reinforce his men who were about to take on the large Austrian contingent. Napoleon assumed that any ensuing battle would take place in the Italian Alps along the Adige, but while he waited for additional information on the Austrian troop movements from his spies, he proactively moved Massena to Verona to garrison the city and then moved 7,000 men back over the Adige. He then ordered General Gabriel Rey to concentrate two brigades at Castelnuovo, just southeast of the banks of Lake Garda, and for General Jean Lain to begin his 2,000 troop movements up from the south to prevent any Austrian advance south towards the Papal States. Finally, he ordered Agarro to Ronco to defend the city, and once in place, Napoleon decided to take on Provera's smaller force of 15,000 men, crush them, and then take on Alvinci's main army of 28,000. To this point, his signature strategy. But the Austrians and Alvinci specifically, had learned from Napoleon, and Provera's force would prove to be nothing more than a feint, intended to draw the French there, where they would then be enveloped by the larger army. It likely would have proven disastrous, but Napoleon dealt in luck, as he would later write to Josephine. And as luck would have it, he received word that on the night of January 13th, that General Jobert was facing the main offensive force from Alvinci, and that he would pull back to Rivoli. And it would be at Rivoli, that the decisive battle in the Siege of Manoa would take place. Upon hearing word that the main attack would come near Rivoli, Napoleon hastily rode there from Verona and decided to issue a brand new set of orders to mitigate the upcoming assault. He instructed Joubert to stay at Rivoli and to hold the city at all costs, ordered Sarouillet to continue the siege at Manoa, but to send cavalry, artillery, and a unit of 600 men up to assist Joubert, and he tasked Agarro with holding Provera, now likely only to be minimally attacked, but to send some men up also to assist at Rivoli. Napoleon would arrive just shy at 2 a.m. on January 14th, with parts of Massena's division to help Jobert form a defensive line on the favorable grounds at the Trombosori Heights, just north of the city. That night was cold, but clear and brightly lit by the moonlight, and Napoleon was able to take note of the Austrian positions thanks to having a good understanding of the nearby terrain from the previous seven months of campaigning. The ensuing battle between Alvinci and Napoleon would contest whether the French would be able to ensure a timely arrival of their reinforcements versus Alvinci's large attacking force, albeit dispersed and needing central concentration in order to be at full fighting capacity. Napoleon figured that if he was able to take the nearby Osteria Gorge and Slope Bridge containing the Chapel of San Marco, both east of Rivoli, he could win the battle fairly easily. He had also ordered General Rey to assist in their attack, and by noon on January 14th, he was anticipating having an infantry force of 18,000 men, a cavalry of 4,000, and 60 heavy guns, leaving the remaining 24,000 or so men to defend the Adige positions and Manoa, respectively. But while he waited for Rey to arrive, he decided to concentrate Alvinci's attention by sending Jobert back to Rivoli and one of his brigades to Asteria before attacking the Austrian center, having heavy gun support behind them to assist. Massena was ordered to hold off the brigade under command of Spanish-born Austrian General Franz Joseph de Lusignan for as long as possible, hoping to keep him from meeting up with the other Austrian columns. With this, the Battle of Rivoli had begun.
At 4 a.m., the 4th, 17th, and 22nd Légeré of the brigade under command of French General Honoré Vial drove the Austrians back and captured the chapel of San Marco and Gilbert followed by attacking the Austrians at the nearby villages of Caprino and San Giovanni. But Gilbert's line suddenly became dangerously stretched thin, and he was eventually repulsed. Vial's advance was also halted, and at 9 a.m., Napoleon sent in Massena to help assist in rescuing the French center. While he was able to reestablish their front line, the fighting in the center there would continue for a grueling 10 hours in the cold north Italian winter. Elsewhere, the Austrians counterattacked the French forces at the nearby village of Trambasore and attempted to turn the French right flank via the River Le Gorge. Austrian General Joseph Philip Vukasevich had marched quickly down the banks of the Adige River and established batteries opposite Osteria. The heavy fire coming from these batteries forced the French forces out of Asteria and onto the Rivoli Plateau, completely exposing them. By 11 a.m., Napoleon's positions were becoming desperate. General Lusignan had arrived with a division of 5,000 men and would drive off Massena's 18th Demi-Brigade, nicknamed the Brave for their courageous attempts at repelling the superior force, and penetrating deep into the French left rear. This would prevent any... reinforcements from arriving, and Napoleon, already under great pressure from his right flank, was now in danger of losing his left and being completely enveloped. With Ray still an hour away with his men, and with only one brigade left in reserve, Napoleon's nervous generals looked to Napoleon, who simply replied, quote, we have them now. You see, while his generals understood that they were in a precarious situation, Napoleon noticed that even though the Austrians appeared to be winning the day, They were already a spent force. Many of these men, having marched hundreds of kilometers from across the Austrian Empire, were beginning to feel fatigue. And while Alvinci had won the morning on the heights of the Trombosori, his troops were scattered by the chaos of battle and the brutal terrain. Napoleon, as was so often the case, sensed a great opportunity to take advantage of this weakness, likely overlooked not only by his generals, but by the Austrian ones as well. Deciding to take on the Austrian center head-on, believing it to be, correctly as it would turn out, a spent force, and with Lusignan still dealing with the persistent 18th Demi-Brigade under Massena, Napoleon concentrated his effort on our old friend, Kizdanovich, in the east. Intentionally thinning out Jobert's lines at Trambosori, he sent every man he could spare to San Marco for the attack to concentrate them at the gorge, attempting to make the best of the situation. When the Austrians, believing the French to be at their breaking point, assailed the gorge, reached the plateau, and they were immediately blasted by French artillery firing canister shot at close range from all sides. This was followed by a large bayonet charge from the infantry column, stunning the densely packed Austrian forces and fixing them into place. Now with the Austrians concentrated on the plateau, French cavalry swooped in to pick them off, led by Joachim Jochat. As they slowly retreated back into the narrow gorge, a French canister shot hit an Austrian artillery wagon, creating a massive explosion that became even more devastating in the tightly packed gorge, essentially creating a pressure cooker. With the Austrian soldiers in complete disarray, even trampling over each other as they attempted to flee, Kwesdanovich ordered the attack to be aborted. Napoleon then ordered another attack on the Austrian center, now in shambles and without artillery. Having won the plateau at great cost, the French would ensure that they would not lose it. When Lusignan finally arrived, he was checked by General Division and future Marshal of the Empire, Guillaume Brun. General Rey would also arrive at Lusignan's rear, forcing their retreat and escaping with barely 2,000 men. By 2 p.m., the Austrians were in full retreat, 
and were only spared from total annihilation after Napoleon received word that General Provera had crossed the Adige and was headed for the lightly defended Manoa, forcing Napoleon to order Massena to assist Agajo in preventing any further Austrian relief of the city. The following day, Jobert and Rey pursued the retreating Alvinci, all but destroying his columns, sending any survivors of the Adige Valley in desperation. The Battle of Rivoli was Napoleon's greatest victory up to that point in his career, and it was an overwhelming success for the French, a stunning loss for the Austrians, and a devastating blow for the coalition forces. Though the victory would come at a great cost for the French, they lost close to 2,200 men and 1,000 more were captured, it would pale in comparison to what was suffered by the Austrians. 4,000 killed, 8,000 captured, 8 guns requisitioned, and 11 battle standards taken. A further 11,000 prisoners would be taken following Alvinci's retreat north in the following days. But with Alvinci now defeated and on the run, the Austrian forces were reeling, and Napoleon turned his attention on Provera. At noon on January 15, 1797, Provera's relief force reached La Favorita, a village just outside of Manoa with 4,700 men, but over half of them were new recruits and had no battle experience to speak of. The following morning, Wurmser attempted to break out of Manoa, but was repulsed and forced back by Sahuye. Massena, charging down from Rivoli, arrived to assist Agajo, and Provera was caught in between them both, Massena from the front and Agajo from the rear. Provera, having no choice, surrendered his entire force, and just like that, the Austrian army in northern Italy ceased to exist. Wurmser would hold out for a few more weeks, but on February 2nd, 1797, he surrendered the city and its entire garrison. After eight grueling, torturous months, the siege of Manoa had come to a merciful end. Over the course of the siege, over 16,000 Austrians died defending the city, and who knows how many more civilians perished, most of whom were reduced to eating rats and dogs as food had become all but non-existent by the end of the siege. The French captured 325 Austrian guns and retook the 179 that they had abandoned back in August. Wurmser and 500 members of his staff were allowed to return to Austria with full military honors, under the condition that they would not fight again until a prisoner exchange between Austria and France had taken place. In the meantime, the rest of the Austrian POWs were hauled off to France, where they would work in the fields, growing food to feed a massive French army, which would come to lay death and destruction on their fellow countrymen over the next 18 years. The victory at Manoa was, to put it mildly, a sensation back in Paris. Crowds gathered in city centers, and when the news was announced in the capital city, trumpets blared. While France had seen their fair share of surprising victories in the War of the First Coalition, Napoleon's victory over Austria in the Siege of Manoa was the first time the French really felt like they were nearing a total victory in the conflict. But as big as the victory was for Napoleon, he wasn't at Manoa to see its final capitulation and surrender. All the way back at the beginning of last week's episode, we mentioned how Napoleon wanted to deal with the Papal States to ensure his southern flank would remain intact, with the Pope finally agreeing to a ceasefire. But a ceasefire did not mean peace, and many of the Papal States began to rise up again in support of the Austrians, albeit far too little and far too late. When many of the Papal troops attempted to put up a fight against the French, they were beaten soundly, and by mid-February, His Holiness Pope Pius VI would sue for peace, this time in the form of a treaty. 
sending the papal negotiator Cardinal Alessandra Amati to Napoleon's headquarters in Tolentino, the Pope agreed to cede Romagna, Bologna, Avignon, and Ferrera to France, close all remaining open ports to the British, and to pay a contribution of 30 million francs, with, of course, 100 works of fine art included. But Napoleon, now essentially the master of Italy at 27 years old, didn't want to stop in Italy, and he made it well known. Sending journals of propaganda out throughout all of northern Italy, mastheads read, quote, Hannibal slept at Capua, but Bonaparte doesn't sleep at Mantua. Napoleon had his eyes on the biggest prize of them all, Vienna. On Friday, March 10, 1797, just as spring was appearing out on the horizon, Napoleon set off on his northern campaign that he had promised the Directory. He knew, as did they, that if they could threaten the Austrian capital, which now just lay over the Alps, France could win the war. Napoleon had originally intended to join his counterparts, Generals Jourdan and Moreau, respectively, in an enveloping pincer movement to surround the Austrian capital. But when he heard that neither had failed to cross the Rhine since their defeats the previous autumn, it became clear that Napoleon would have to go at it alone. And I'd personally like to think that Jourdan and Moreau probably wanted it that way. Remember, at the start of this campaign, the Directory gave Napoleon the Army of Italy command as a simple thank you for his actions during Toulon and Vendemire. He wasn't supposed to be this conquering hero, which all of France was now indebted. Jourdan and Moreau were the true military geniuses. They were supposed to lead France to victory over the Austrians and the Germans. After all, both had nearly twice the amount of men as Napoleon did. But they did. They didn't succeed. And indeed, watching from afar as Napoleon slogged his way through the treacherous northern Italian terrain, his men freezing and ill-supplied to total victory, that had to have been embarrassing. What they had been unable to do in nearly four years, he did in less than ten months. Ouch. But Napoleon knew that embarking on this campaign with only 40,000 men crossing the Alps and into the enemy heartland would, of course, be difficult, especially if there wouldn't be any help coming from the West. But he knew how to motivate his men. He gave speeches on how the British were financing this, quote, war on the continent, sowing seeds of discord amongst common neighbors. He painted Austrian Emperor Francis as nothing more than a puppet for his British overlords, and explained that riches lay at their feet should their campaign succeed. You know, the British cash. Basically, he used the British as motivation, and if you're French, well, that's about as good as a motivation as I've ever seen, right? Now, we've spent so much time talking about the Siege of Manoa and the protracted struggle that ensued just in the attempt to retake that one fortress. So, surely the campaign into Austria itself would be even bloodier, right? Well, no. <laughs> you see, the Austrians could see the writing on the wall. After Napoleon crossed the Tagliamento River between Trieste and Venice, he engaged Austrian General Archduke Charles at Valvasone, inflicting a small defeat, which was then followed up by a larger prisoner exchange by General Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte the following day. Charles, who to this point had developed a reputation as a strong field commander after beating Jordan and Moreau in battle, led a poorly spirited defense, and the Austrians accepted an offer of an armistice on April 2nd at Leoben, just over 100 miles southwest of Vienna. It was said that the troops standing atop the nearby Semmering Hills could see the spires of the Austrian capital. Napoleon admonished Charles as well, writing back to the directory that his strategy was borderline pathetic. Quote, he makes mistakes at every turn, and extremely stupid ones at that. But however it happened, Napoleon was successful. 
And in just over 18 months, he had knocked out the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, six Austrian armies, the Pope, and began to redraw the map of Europe as we knew it. Once a relatively unknown soldier, Napoleon was now famous all over Europe. Of all the legendary Austrian generals pitted against him, he stood above them all, victor and master of Italy. When we look back at how Napoleon got to this place, essentially a military dictator over Italy, it bears remembering how truly remarkable the feat is. His army had little supplies, low morale, and few soldiers. But he knew how to motivate these men. He knew what they wanted and what they needed. He knew how to relate to them. He knew he had what was necessary to win this campaign with them, even if others did not. He did it by implementing innovative strategies that had not yet been tested in the field of battle. He did it by making sure every detail was accounted for to ensure success. And he did it by finding good men to help lead his soldiers. Indeed, it is in Italy that we really begin to see the blossoming careers of not just Napoleon, but many of his generals who would soon become legendary in their own rights. Joachim Mioja, André Massena, Jean-Mathieu Philibert Sarouille, Charles-Pierre Agarreau, all played invaluable parts in his victory and all who would be rewarded for their courage and bravery in a campaign that truly saw David beat a mighty Goliath. Next week, we'll dive into the piece that came from the Italian campaign, formally ending the War of the First Coalition, though, as I'm sure you've no doubt now figured out, the war was all but over. Because while victory was important, its peace could not be secured lest the victors make the most of it. And as Napoleon put it in 1808 while writing to his brother Joseph, quote, winning is not enough if one doesn't take advantage of success. Thank you, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you.